You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all the things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as a light in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Mayel. Let's pray before we turn our attention to this passage. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, as we now turn our attention to your word, would you, through even this sermon, spread the gift of your Holy Spirit more and more to your people? Would you send your spirit so that we might be more and more united to Jesus, we might be more and more committed to his kingdom, and we might mature in our understanding and our appreciation of the new life that belongs to us because of the work of Christ. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, in the throes of lockdown boredom, I was searching for a movie to watch with my kids, and I made one of those parenting mistakes. I saw a movie called Billy Madison. I had some vague memories of it. I saw Adam Sandler on the cover, but I didn't remember it being anything, uh, any a bad movie. I saw it was rated PG-13, but I thought, let's give it a shot. Adam Sandler's funny. I remembered the basic premise, and I thought, maybe this will make the kids laugh, and maybe when they see what the story's about, they'll, do, they'll take their schoolwork a little more seriously. And about 10 or 15 minutes into the movie, I was reminded that it is not a great family movie, <laughs> and we had to look for other movies after that. I would not recommend you watch it. But the premise you might remember is simple. Adam Sandler plays the part of Billy Madison, a 20-something whose father is extremely wealthy and successful businessman, and he's an heir to a massive fortune. And he lives in this incredible estate, and Billy Madison is essentially a failure-to-launch kid. Uh, He has a maid at his beck and call. He takes bubble baths all the time. He and his friends are basically drunk. I don't know if I realized that when I first watched the movie as a younger kid, but they essentially sit around their pool all day and drink. He hallucinates and sees penguins in his yard. He gets frustrated with swans that are on the bathtub fixtures. You might remember some of the details. And the first couple of the minutes of the movie are all about how Billy Madison is this self-absorbed, spoiled idiot who just needs to grow up. And it's funny, but it's also extremely pathetic. 
The premise is that Billy Madison has failed to grow up. He's never actually completed school. And because of that, he is a failure to his father and he cannot take over the family business. Now, we turned off Billy Madison, and at risk of being irreverent, because I'm not recommending you watch that movie, especially as a family, I want to remind you of what Paul has been doing in this passage and what Paul is warning us about in this specific passage. So we've been looking at Philippians, and the past couple of weeks, Paul has been unpacking this incredible theology. God has sent his son, and everything that was true of God is true of his son, but his son came and took on a human nature. And God God, in, the, in a human body, in, with a human nature, gave his life for us. His son gave his life for us. Jesus dies on the cross so that all of our sins and debts can be forgiven. And this is received simply by faith, by saying, I trust that this Jesus is who the Bible says he is. There is now incredible spiritual wealth and incredible spiritual privilege for those who are followers of Christ. And this passage is giving us this morning a warning, and I don't mean to be irreverent, but it's telling us to not be a spiritual Billy Madison. (laughs) Don't be immature. Don't be spoiled with privilege. Seek to do the right thing with this privilege. Seek true maturity. And in this passage, Paul is going to argue that true Christian maturity comes through obedience, obedience to King Jesus. But the question and the thought of obedience and what it means as a Christian to obey elicits all kinds of strange feelings in our life. You know, oh no, here goes the church again, micromanaging my moral life. Well, what I think Paul wants the church to reflect on maybe could be summarized in two questions that I want to look at this morning. The first question is, what does true Christian maturity actually feel like? What what does it feel like internally, experientially, to mature as a Christian? And the second thing I think Paul wants us to reflect on is, what is the goal of true Christian maturity? So we're going to look at the the feeling of Christian maturity, and then finally the goal of Christian maturity, or the aim of Christian maturity. So first, what does Christian maturity actually feel like? I think Paul's wrestling through that type of question in this passage. He has told us of this great privilege that has come to us, but he's now telling us with great privilege comes great responsibility. And I am convinced that when Paul gives this passage, the, the, the main command you hear, the imperative you hear, is in verse 13, where we just heard read, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul says, as you've always obeyed in my presence, so now while I'm sitting here in jail in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is his command. This is his clear instruction for the church at this time. But then, almost as soon as you start to get your mind wrestling through, what does it mean to work out my salvation with fear and trembling? How does that play out? Is this some sort of uh, asceticism, torturing myself, so to speak, for the sake of Christ? Paul then, in verse 13, builds up the tension by saying it is ultimately God who brings forth the desires and even the efforts in your life to uh, work out towards his good pleasure, his intentions in your life. And this is the tension the passage 
passage puts us in. If you stop reading at verse 12, you would say, let's roll up our sleeves, let's get to work. If you just read verse 13, you would say, oh, God is working inside of us, there's nothing for us to do. And this is a paradox, a bit of a tension that I think Paul wants us to understand Christian maturity is constantly working through. What does it feel like to mature? Well, it feels like hard work. It feels like fearful and trembling work at a holy God who's invited you to be his daughter, to be his son. But as you tremble, as you seek to be a loyal son, faithful to the family name, you also have this strange confidence that ultimately, even your desire to obey, your desire to follow after Jesus, even that is God working in you. This is not you working to earn your salvation. That work has already been done. This passage is telling us that that salvation implants something like a new power inside of you, and your job is to take what has been put inside of you and work it out throughout all elements of your life. It's not as though uh, God works in you through the Spirit, and then somehow He says, all right, you're on your own, go for it. It's not as though God is saying uh, that He will continue to help those who help themselves. It's not as though God is saying, this is a 50-50 split. I do my part of the dance, you do your part of the dance, and that's how Christian maturity works. It's not as though God bakes the cake, and then He says, look, you just need to put the icing on the top. No. It's also not as though the passage is saying that God simply does everything, and you think you're doing things, but ultimately it's really just God. So kick up your feet, you know, let go and let God mystically take over your body. It's not as though God by his spirit almost puts in some sort of virtuous intoxicant, which makes you sort of spiritually inebriated and you find yourself doing things that you almost couldn't conceive of doing. No, this passage is saying it feels like you are a hundred percent working your tail off, and at the same time, you know one hundred percent of this is God working behind the scenes. That which God has placed inside of you by the Spirit, Paul is saying you need to make sure it works its way outside of you. It's one hundred percent your work, and you know full and well it's a hundred percent God who is at work behind the scenes in you. It's tough to illustrate this properly, and I spent much time thinking about the way that this paradox feels in our life. Even the, the verb work out um, is a, a word that has some sort of connection to agrarian society. It was frequently used when thinking of farming. And so maybe the best illustration I could come up with is it's sort of like the farmer who plants this seed in the ground. W- within the seed, there is a power for new life. Just under the uh, soil, the seed is planted there. But if the seed lacks the power, of life, it will not grow. So if the seed has the power of life, it is going to grow. But what does the farmer have to do? Kick up his feet or kick up her feet and hope that the, the plants begin to grow? No, the farmer has to go out and till the soil and pull the weeds who will suck water away from the seed and ensure that the seed is properly watered, ensure that the seed gets proper sunshine as it starts to grow. There is work that the farmer does, but at the end of the day, if the seed lacks life, The work is a waste of time. The growth of the plant is dependent on the life of the seed, which is implanted under the soil. But even that is not a perfect illustration. 
I thought even about maybe if you think about if you were in a tandem bike race, this is a bit absurd, but you can imagine yourself riding one of these tandem bikes with someone in the front and the back. And imagine if you're in a race and riding behind you is the greatest sort of world-class cyclist pedaling uh, his absolute hardest. And you realize that as you pedal and as you go, you contribute to the efforts of the team, but not really. <laughs> if you put your feet out and let uh, the world-class cyclist pedal, you will still probably win the race. I thought maybe this metaphor, this picture of, of work out your salvation, but it's ultimately God working could be compared to maybe receiving a new computer and realizing within the computer is unbelievable capabilities, but you need to learn how to utilize them to draw them out of the machine. Look, there is no perfect example to illustrate how God's sovereignty lines up with human responsibility. There's ways in which we wrestle through these things and the ways in which we try to understand them. At the end of the day, it's paradoxical. We are 100% do what we desire and will and push forward, and yet God is ultimately shaping our desires, shaping our wills, making us into uh, the people who pursue after godliness the way that we do. And this is the call of this passage. Paul wants everyone to know what it feels like to mature in the Christian faith. It feels like effort. It's not as though Billy Madison's wealth meant that he didn't have to do anything, didn't have to go to school, that, that it, he would automatically be fine because of this massive wealth. No, there was some sense in which having this great privilege meant that he still had to put forward the effort to become the man that he needed to be to live up to the family name. Christian maturity feels like striving. It feels like pedaling. It feels like dripping sweat. But it also feels like having confidence that it's God working inside of you to change your desires, to strengthen your efforts, to make them effective. When you follow Christ, you are animated in, inside of yourself. There's a new life that breaks in inside of you. This is what Christian maturity feels like. Something happens deep inside with your desires. Something happens deep inside with, with um, your wants. And as God's Spirit begins to work and change these things, and you pursue the things that you most want, you find yourself growing more and more like Christ. The seed of resurrection power is implanted inside your body. And Paul is saying it's time for what is inside to come outside. It's time for what is inside to take life, take root, and grow. It's God who works in us. It's God who gives us our new attitudes, our new desires, even our new capabilities. It's God who's at work ultimately. And so when you feel him nudging and working, you better get to work, working those things inside out into your life. And what does this mean for us today? If this is what Christian maturity feels like, I feel like this is an important principle for all of us to hear, especially as lockdowns have so many of us extremely discouraged. This principle would tell us, though, that the more we work, the more we will also see God work. Now think about this. The more we feel inclinations to read our Bible, to pray, to go out and serve the poor, or to care for those in need, the more we feel inclinations to reach out to someone and see how they're doing, and the more we act on those things, the more we will grow in confidence that it's ultimately God who is at work inside of us, and we'll be able to experience God's work afresh. As we hold on to the Word of God, as we read in verse 16, sort of applying the Word of God to our lives, hearing God's Word calling us to do things, as we do the things God's Word calls us to do, we will know God is working. If you feel as though God is not working in your life, 
This passage is telling you, do you feel any inclination, any change in an attitude and a desire internally? Is there anything you want to fix and strive for? Go after it. And as you strive and struggle to change, you will ultimately be experiencing God's power working inside of you. Now, what does this mean to those who are burnt out? To those who are languishing, I believe, as the New York Times article diagnosed most of us, sort of stuck in this difficult season, this muck. This passage isn't telling you, you can do it. Dig a little deeper. Get your act together. That's not how this passage would encourage you. This passage would encourage you by saying this, though. If you feel stuck, if you feel languishing, this passage is reminding you that you are not alone. God is in this with you. He is working with you now. You are not alone. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is what Christian maturity feels like. It feels like sweat in the gym. It feels like the difficulties of pedaling. It feels like hard work. It feels like labor. And it feels like knowing ultimately, even all of those efforts and desires, ultimately, it's God working to bring those about. This is what Christian maturity feels like. But now let's ask, what is the goal of Christian maturity? What are we after? What's the aim? And Paul gives these very specific instructions related to Christian maturity. I think they must apply to something going on in Philippi in verses 14, when he says, do all things without grumbling and disputing. Then in verse 15, uh, that you might be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. What is Paul doing here? Well, what Paul is doing is he's referencing some Old Testament stories and passages, actually quite a bit. He's referencing uh, the moment when God's people were rescued. They were enslaved in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh, and God broke into the earth and set them free from the slavery and brought them to a land that was going to be their land, the land flowing with milk and honey, where they could experience all the blessings of what it means to be God's people. But as God delivers them out of Egypt, and as they are uh, making their way to their land, they begin to grumble. They begin to say, I miss the meals that we had in Egypt. What is God doing to us? Weren't we better off as slaves in Pharaoh's land? And they grumble to God. And in Deuteronomy 32, Moses gives a sermon. And he says to the people, uh, the, the people who have been set free as um, slaves, he says to them, you are not acting as children of God. You're acting as a crooked and twisted generation. And he reminds God's people of their calling. Their calling was to be a light to the whole world. A, a lighthouse of sorts to a world full of ships that need guidance so that they don't break into the shore. And later in the Bible, in Daniel chapter 12, actually, God will talk about his people shining like stars with the same language that Paul picks up here. So what Paul is saying is this. He's saying, when you grumble, you know, when you are caught up in disputes, you are failing to be what God has called you to be. You are failing to live into your identity as children of God. And this is the basic ethic of the entire Bible and the way in which uh, maturity progresses, the goal of maturity, that those who are rescued, those who are given salvation, those who have tasted of the riches of heaven as the people of Jesus' kingdom, that these people would learn to live out that identity in this world. They would be who they actually are. This is the goal of Christian maturity, to live out the identity that belongs to you because of Jesus' work for you. 
Listen, ours is a world obsessed with identity. No one is sure how identity is properly found. We assume it is found by looking inside of yourself and figuring out who you are and what you love and how you act. And then these inner feelings sort of dictate the type of identity that you now have to perform into the world, the way in which you have to act consistently to live true to your identity. But we all know this is an exhausting, exhausting game. And we all know people are constantly questioning what identity is most true to them. Paul is saying, live out this identity that is given to you. You are God's children. Shine like stars in the sky to this lost world. This is your deepest and truest identity. You were created by God, a God who desired relationship with you. You were part of a rebellion, and he delivered you from that rebellion, set you free from the slavery you imposed upon yourself, and he made you into his people. Be who you are. This is the type of identity we need. It's one that's given to us, that's true of us, and it belongs to us before we even become, before we fully comprehend it. We are people made after God's image and rescued by God. Be who you are. Now, look, I realize in the city, it's rare for us to look up and see the stars. And in a time of the GPS, the stars don't have as much value to us other than to just delight in them when we're out camping. But for generations, stars were used to help sailors and navigators explore and find their bearings. You can read of unbelievable expeditions like Ernest Shackleton's, where he's able to navigate Antarctica just using lights of the stars and find outpost islands to get additional supplies in dire situations just by using the stars and maps. And what Paul is saying is this. During this incredible time in which we live, the Christian community is called to shine like those stars, like those constellations that will help people get their bearing and bring about order in the world that feels as though they are caught up in chaos. This is what the Christian community is called to be. As we think of coming to a conclusion, let me just tell you that we are living in an incredible time because maybe for the first time in almost all of our lives, we have a chance to take a great audit of how we spend our time. We have a chance to rethink our priorities and our schedules and think through what we want to add and what we want to subtract. Prior to COVID, you would never get an opportunity like this, except for maybe if you've moved and you tried to reinvent yourself, or if you experienced amnesia or some serious illness and you got a chance to rethink through your calendar. But all of us have it coming out of COVID. Will we use this as a chance for us to value church attendance? Will we use it as a chance for us to leave room for us to get to know our neighbors and prioritize church community? Will we use it as uh, use this great audit as a time for us to make sure we are holding fast to the word of life? Will we make sure we are loving God with our whole lives and loving our neighbors as ourselves with how we conduct ourselves after this grand audit? Will we think of our lives as though we are a star, maybe shining in a constellation called Christ Church Toronto, and this constellation points to other constellations which point ultimately to Jesus Christ? where people can find their true bearing. Listen, God has ordered history in such a way that whether we want it or not, we will be worshiping outdoors in mid-June, and it will be hot. But like it or not, as our neighbors go out for a walk, they are going to hear us sing about the work God has done for us in Christ. They're going to hear God's word read, and I'm sure as we experienced last time we gathered at Taylor Creek Park, many will lend an ear. Will we be a beautiful constellation in the dark sky? 
this is what Paul wants us to be. And this is what he says would be his pride, his joy, which would give him tremendous rejoicing at the end of his life. So in conclusion, what is this passage calling us to do? This passage, in this passage, Paul is giving this church this grand charge to mature. Don't be like Billy Madison. Now, like I said, my family didn't finish Billy Madison, but I did read the plot summary on Wikipedia while we were watching the first couple of minutes. And I'm guessing few of you remember how the story goes. But as the story goes, Billy Madison struggles through and finishes his education that he failed to do. He puts himself in a situation where he can become the one who takes over the family business. But he realizes that that is not for him. And he also realizes that he has all that he needs in life. And he decides that he is going to pursue what gave him real meaning in life. And that is education. He decides to go to college and to become a teacher. And this is the way he uses the privilege that has come to him. He, does, he realizes he doesn't have anything to earn. And all that belongs to him, all the wealth and privilege that has been given to him, he now sees as an opportunity for him to, to be the person in which he's called to be. Listen, without being irreverent, and I probably will never talk about Billy Madison again in a sermon, the great gift of salvation has been offered to you, and it's a gift you could never earn. And it's a gift that you can waste. And it's a gift that you can fail to enjoy. This passage is telling us that God is absolutely for you. He absolutely is for you as your father. He sent his son to purchase salvation for you. He loves you. And he has made you his child. He's given to you this great gift of salvation. And there is nothing, there is nothing you can do to ruin it. All that's left is to simply enjoy it. All that's left is to delight in it and that which is put inside of you to work out into all areas of your life. This is the call of this passage. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at christchurchtoronto.ca or email us at info at christchurchtoronto.ca.